0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we love telling stories about history. As always, all of our stories about American history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study and learn about all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. I learned more in their Constitution 101 course, a 10-hour beauty, than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. So again, sign up for Hillsdale College's free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And now... This is the story of our 18th President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. But this story isn't about his time as Commander in Chief, but rather the events in his life up to that point that shaped and molded him as a man. Here's our own Monty Montgomery, a Hillsdale grad on the story.
1: Ulysses S. Grant was born on April 27, 1822, in the small town of Point Pleasant, Ohio to parents Jesse Root Grant and Hannah Simpson Grant. Here's Dr. John Marsalak of the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library with more. His mother and father
2: uh, were very, very important people in his life in, in different ways. His father is more or less of an abolitionist and he also wrote for a, a newspaper which which leaned in an abolitionist direction and he's one of these fellows that likes to say immediately what he thinks he doesn't he doesn't think things through particularly so he's very outgoing the mother she is a very very shy person she doesn't give grant the kind of love or support that you might expect for a mother to give, the father was always a presence in in, in his life and always you know told him what to do etc et etc cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Grant is much more like his mother than he is like his father, so this whole idea of Grant being a quiet person, I think you can trace back to the to the time when he's living at home. Grant is pretty much not interested in anything but farming, and and not interested in doing much of anything else. He's certainly not uh, not one of these people who wants to follow his father in his father's footsteps, because one of the things his father did was his father uh, worked in a tannery, or owned a tannery, actually, and Grant hated it. Grant loved horses. He, he he reacted very well to uh, to horses, and he he knew how to train them. He knew how to get them to do. He could do things with horses that nobody else could do. And there's a very famous story of, of his experience with that where he really wanted his horse, and his father thought it was just, the horse just wasn't worth it. He shouldn't do that. So Grant kept working on him, working on him, working on him. So finally the father said, okay, go in there. But what i want you to do is make an offer for that horse if the if the neighbor who owns this horse doesn't accept the offer then raise it up a little bit and raise it up again and so what grant did actually he went to the, this neighbor and he said well my father told me that i should come and talk to you and i should offer you this much and if you didn't take that i should up it a little bit and if you didn't take that i should finally pay, pay no more than i think it was 25 dollars and so you have a situation where Grant actually gets what he wants, but he does it in such a way that it's something that he has to live down for the, uh, for the, rest, of his, uh, for the rest of his life.
1: And while Grant was busy developing a love for horses, Jesse Root Grant was busy developing a roadmap for his son's education. His father is a great believer uh, in education. And
2: so Grant was sent off out of town to schools where he learned, and, and he learned, I think, more about abolitionism than he learned about anything else. But he was a very, very much of a, of a real supporter. Uh, was the father of of Grant and getting as much education as he possibly uh, uh, could. He was obsessed with education. He wanted his children, and particularly Grant, his, you know, his most important child, as he saw it, uh, to have as much
1: education as, as possible. Here's Eddie Rangal of the Ulysses S. Grant Museum with more on Jesse Root Grant's drive to have his son properly educated.
3: I, I think one of those important moments was his father's drive to push him to to think, to, to read, to be educated, so to speak. This is sort of unusual at the time for Grant's upbringing. He's, he was an average person. He would have been expected to, to take over the family farm, but his father wanted him to, to study, to, to continue to learn. And so I think this drive that his father instilled in him, although they didn't have a great relationship, it's something that Grant is going to carry through the rest of his life as he you know develops at West Point and then after that. He didn't want to go to West Point. His father shows up one day and basically tells him, I have secured an appointment for you to West Point. There was somebody in that town that didn't make it, flunked
2: out, basically. And so so there was an opening, and Grant's father
3: was willing to go for it. And Grant is like, what? You know, it's, it's sort of that that typical scenario that has happened over the centuries where parents tell their child that they're going to do something or they will major in this, and their child sort of says, why? He thought it was a terrible mistake, he'd be a terrible
2: soldier, he thought, and if he just disliked the military all his life, even when he was
3: a famous general, he didn't particularly uh, care about this. But the reason why his father really secures this appointment from him is because Jesse Root Grant knows that West Point will be free; he won't have to pay for this education mm-hmm. when he gets that appointment. And so, you know, that's that's reason number one. And then reason number two, and perhaps most important is that this education that West Point is going to provide for him will secure his future for the rest of his life. Once Grant completes that degree, he doesn't have to spend a lot of time in the military and then, and then he can go and, and, and do whatever he wants with a world-class education at the time, of course. And so he's going to West Point sort of against his will, but this is, this is for his future and, and, and you know, for his benefit, so to speak. He only went
2: because he liked traveling, and so he thought, well, maybe this way I'll get to see some of the country that I ordinarily won't see. He did it because his father, in fact, he said, since my father said I should go, I guess I better go. I better change my mind and go. Grant is not a very popular figure at West Point. He doesn't make a lot of a lot of friends. He is not somebody that people look up to as one of the individuals who's going to really make a difference. And everywhere they're going to say, "Yeah, that Grant boy, when he gets when he gets in the army, he's going to he's going to be a terrific person, etc., etc." But it doesn't it doesn't really work out. But even at West Point, he, he's tried to stay, never read his lessons more than once because he just was bored by it. He spent most of his time um, uh, reading novels more than anything else.
3: One of the important moments, I think, for Grant, even, even at a time where I think he's very unhappy, or well, not unhappy, but he's simply not finding his place uh, while he was at West Point, But he begins to develop his love for horses a little bit more into sort of a more useful skill. This is where people begin to realize that Grant is actually a very good horseman. Uh, He breaks several records that are going to stand for a long time at West Point. This is a skill that later, especially in the Mexican War and and in the Civil War as well, are going to be important. Grant would graduate West Point in a middling position within his class,
1: 21st out of some 40 students but he would meet someone there who would change his life and lead him to someone who would become very important to him i think two of the most important
2: things that uh, that happened to him is he met two people one person was a fellow named uh, Fred Dent, and Dent was his roommate one year. But basically, what he does is he goes to Jefferson Barracks, which is not too far from St. Louis. Dent said, "Look, you're go- you're going to be going, uh, you're going to be going to to the St. Louis area. My father and my family has a has a place there, and you're welcome to come anytime." And so
3: he does go there. And he meets his future wife, Julia. Of course, Grant, like we said, comes from a very modest abolitionist family from Ohio. And Julia is uh, the daughter of a relatively well-to-do plantation owner with a pretty sizable number of enslaved persons working at the plantation. And so her family is is part of the slave economy, whereas Grant's is is not. Grant's... family that he marries into is distantly tied
2: to James Longstreet, leading Confederate general. Actually, Longstreet uh, is uh, Grant's best man at, uh, when, when, he marries, uh, when he marries
3: Julia. Now, Julia's father was not very thrilled with the idea of her you know, being courted by Grant. And Grant's father, Jesse Rue Grant, was certainly uh, not thrilled with the idea of his son courting a the daughter of a, of a slave owner. It's my understanding that the Grant family, no members of the Grant family, showed up to, to the wedding. One, one thing that really did draw them
2: together, the one thing was Julia liked to horseback ride. And so they would take rides together you know, he on his horse and she on her horse, along the plantation. And that, that I think, helped bring them, uh, bring them together. And interestingly enough, Julia is one of the few people who thinks that, that Grant is gonna to amount to anything. Most people say, nah, he's not gonna be good. In fact, the father, her father, didn't like Grant at all and thought he was gonna be, he's an absolute
1: loser. Grant would soon find himself in a more uncomfortable position than simply dealing with an unimpressed father-in-law. He would be shipped out to the front in the Mexican-American War. And Grant went, despite his personal opinion on the conflict and the fact he would be assigned to a job which he didn't like, quartermaster, a glorified paper pusher in the eyes of Grant. He's one of
2: these people who believes that if you're given an order, like with with his father, if you're given an order, you follow the order, you do what you're supposed to do. And so you have a situation where where Grant, on numerous occasions, is willing to do the quartermaster work, even though he doesn't like it, but he'll do it anyway. But yet, when he gets a chance, he sneaks into into battle. But it, it's not that Grant suddenly likes, he never likes the military, but he understands that he has to do what he has to do.
3: Uh, he really learns a lot from General Zachary Taylor. He sees the way he commands troops, the way he inspires, the, the way he leads his men from the front, not from the back. These moments are really important for Grant, even though Grant opposed the Mexican War. He saw it as a, as a war uh, of aggression towards a neighboring state. He thought it was unjust. He understood that the political motivations behind it from President James K. Polk to essentially start a war with Mexico to gain this territory that Mexico would refuse to sell and continue to expand west to fulfill Manifest Destiny. Grant finds a problem with this, but nevertheless, his time in the Mexican War really becomes this really important moment for Grant. And after the Mexican-American War, Grant was sent all
1: across the expanded United States to remote forts in order to protect settlers, falling into a depression as a result of being away from home and family for so long. In fact, one of the children he doesn't even
2: see until several years later. When he shows up back at his house in St. Louis, the child doesn't even recognize him. And what Grant was doing, he was drinking during that time. And the reason he was drinking was because he missed his wife and his family uh, so much. One could almost argue that he's self-medicating himself.
1: And this led to problems with his superiors, especially a man by the name of Robert Buchanan would issue him an ultimatum after finding Grant hung over on the job. Buchanan says, you can't behave like that. We
2: can't do that. So you have a choice. You either straighten out or you resign. And so what, what actually happens is, is Grant doesn't want to resign, but he has no choice.
3: This is where these Rumors, really, that will follow him for the rest of his life originate of him being, being a drunk. He was not addicted to alcohol in the same sense that, that an alcoholic is, as opposed to perhaps more of an abuse of alcohol to alleviate some of that depression or, or you know, angst that he has. That episode just made it so much more difficult for him, and he's had to
2: battle that for the rest of his life and even to the present day.
1: after resigning from the military grant would return home and return home broke there's
2: a couple instances where he's such bad shape that he's got to sell firewood uh, on the street corners of st louis and there's a very famous famous episode where grant and sherman who don't know each other all that well meet and I think Sherman is, says, well, heck of a thing for former West Pointers, isn't it, Grant? And Grant just said, yeah, I guess it is. And that was about it. So he did that, and he also had to sell a favorite watch so he could buy his uh, his family, his kids, something for Christmas, so you have some of that. So there's just a number of instances where, where Grant tries things. And usually, come to think of it, usually it has something to do with farming. And that's something he thinks he can really do well but he he doesn't do well.
1: And with no other options, Grant would be forced to ask his father for a job. What happened
2: was he went to his father, which was an incredibly difficult thing for him to do, to go to his father and say, give me a job in your Store where we sell sell these tan uh, tanned goods, so grant doesn't like that he, he's not involved he's, he doesn't do anything to do with uh, with tanning, but he's involved in the selling and he, and he tours uh, the midwest and he sells and the father's doing uh, doing quite successfully uh, you know at this at this particular time, so yeah, Grant convinces his father i can 't make it on my own, give me a job in the store, and he's got a brother, an older brother who's ill, and so he helps him. And it's a very, very confused thing, but the result is that Grant does work for the father and the father never lets him forget that. And so for the rest of his life, even when he's president, the father is still trying to get get stuff from Grant for some of his friends.
1: Eddie now tells the story of a pivotal moment in Grant's life when he was at his lowest and inherited a slave named William Jones.
3: His father-in-law gifts him a, uh, or I guess gives him a slave, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And Grant works alongside him, which is something that would have been frowned upon by, you know, white slave-owning society of the time. However, uh, eventually, you know, even at his lowest, he realizes that, well, one, this this is not for him. And so he emancipates, or he frees William Jones, probably at one of his lowest times, when he could really have benefited from the monetary value that an enslaved person could have brought him. I think it's an important part in the story of Grant because you really get to see how he evolves uh, over time. I think it's best to say that he felt he was sort of ambivalent. He didn't really care about of slavery, but he also didn't speak out openly against it, at least in his early uh, in his early years. And so he's just kind of in between there, not really caring for it, not really loving it. Uh, and so that that's an important moment while, you know, before the Civil War for Grant.
2: Julia thinks that slavery is wonderful.
3: In fact, she even holds on, you know, more or less holds
2: on to a slave throughout the, uh, throughout the Civil War, where Grant comes to see that slavery is a evil. And, and if you're gonna understand why there is a Civil War, you have to understand that, that people are fighting to, to defend slavery. He thought the Civil War was a terrible thing; that that there that it shouldn't happen. There's no reason to 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 split the country apart. Slavery was not not worth doing it. Nothing was uh, was worth doing it. And the way he really got into the war, more or less, he got into the war, was when they had a big town meeting in Galena, and he was chosen as the person to run the town meeting simply because. He was the only West Pointer that any everybody in town uh, uh knew, and so the result is is that that you have uh, you have Grant running the meeting, and then once he runs the meeting and once he gets uh company really set up uh in uh, in galena then it 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 doesn't much matter because they say well that's that's nice, but nobody wants to give. Grant what he thinks he deserves because he's a West Pointer that he that he get a regiment until finally the, the governor of uh, Illinois Yates Robert Yates gives him. The 21st Regiment, because nobody else can can make these guys toe the line, and somehow Grant can, which is an amazing thing in itself. That Grant would be the one that could step in there and get these guys in line, because normally he just doesn't really doesn't really play much of a role in this sort of thing. In fact, Yates, the job that Yates gives him, is based on his quartermaster skill. But in this case, he becomes the leader of the 21st
1: Illinois Regiment. And soon, Grant would get his first taste of battle in the American Civil War. Grant is, is leading this
2: 21st Regiment, which he straightened out pretty well, leading him in, into, uh, uh, into battle, but he's scared to death. In fact, he says in his memoirs how his heart kept moving into his throat and until he gets over this hill and he's expecting to find the, the, the Confederates ready to clean his clock. And they don't, they're, they're, they're gone. And he comes to the conclusion, you know, these guys are as afraid of me as I am of them. And this is something he never forgets for the rest of the Civil War. I think one of the big things that you have to understand is is that Grant understood that the people he was fighting were just human beings. They were some of the people he had met before, They were some people that they, they were going to meet later on, but he came to understand that Robert E. Lee, for example, who he had met, he, Lee wouldn't, wouldn't admit that he met him, but he did meet him during the, uh, during the Mexican-American War, that Lee was no Superman. He was just remember the famous statement he says where where somebody is worried about well what's grant what's lee going to do and, and grant says look don't worry about lee you worry about yourself you do what you keep indicating that he's going to do a triple somersault and land behind our lines it's just not going to happen i know this guy he's just another human being and the other secondly that these are fellow americans that you're fighting against.
3: Grant's demeanor was more like his mother as opposed to his father. He was a calm individual. Uh, he didn't really show a lot of emotion. And so if you take his Mexican war experience, learning from Taylor, learning from Scott, uh, his, his own demeanor, um, you really see a very calm, calculated individual in battle. He's also going back to his earlier time
2: when he's willing to to act whether or not he has the, the uh, power to do it. He's just gonna do it. The whole idea is you, you keep moving forward, you keep moving forward. If you're going this way and you're stopped, doesn't matter, keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's what Lincoln comes to believe.
1: And after winning countless victory after countless victory
3: in the West, Lincoln would promote Grant to General. When Grant is promoted and he's recalled back to Washington, you know, no one really knows him. He's, he's sort of quietly been fighting in the West, just uh, whipping the rebels, so to speak. But he comes back to Washington and when he checks into the hotel with his son, they basically put him up in an attic. You know, Grant, again, his personality was not flashy. He didn't, he didn't really like attention or anything like that. He was never known to be, you know, have his uniform super clean or anything. <laughs> and so he just goes along with it until the clerk, after a few minutes, realizes who he is because they had read about him. And certainly they could see pictures of him, but they weren't accurate to what Grant looked like. He sees that U.S. Grant has signed in. And then he realizes the mistake he 's made, and so he very quickly puts the hotel staff to i believe get a guest out of their room, so the general Grant can have a room and then certainly when he when he goes to the white House to to meet President Lincoln, you know it 's full of people, and so here it is again, shy Grant walking in into this room full of high-society Washington people. I I don't want to say he shrinks in the moment, but he's certainly taken by the moment uh, of, of Lincoln sort of presenting him to all these Washington elite. And at the end of the war, and after seeing so much bloodshed, Grant would show
1: humility and respect to his former enemies at Appomattox, allowing them to keep their guns and horses, provided they simply return home.
2: He pretty much follows what Lincoln has said. Lincoln kept saying, let him off easy, let him off easy. So one of the things that happens at Appomattox is they get together and Grant is willing to to give Lee and give the Confederates and treat them fairly. And what he does is we're not going to put it to you, uh, Confederates. We're going to let you off easy, which Lincoln agrees with and Americans agree with, because after all, these are all Americans.
0: And great job to Monty Montgomery for putting that together. And a special thanks to the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Starkville, Mississippi, for their contributions to this piece. And again, thanks to Dr. John Marzalak and Eddie Rangel. Both of them you heard throughout this piece. Go to usgrantlibrary.org. That's usgrantlibrary.org. And what an American story. What a turnaround. From leaving the military as a drunkard in some ways, though he wasn't, from selling wood on a street corner, begging his dad for a job as a grown man, to only a couple of years later, leading the U.S. Army in the Civil War. And in the end, becoming a U.S. president. Just remarkable. And my goodness, his charge to always be moving forward and to take action. Well, this is why Lincoln finally put him in command, because he was just willing to fight. And also what he said about, well, your enemy or something that you might fear, and perhaps his greatest insight as a commander. They feared us as much as we feared them. The life of U.S. Grant here on Our American Story. We continue here with Our American Stories. And this next one is about a really serious subject and one that affects so many millions of American families. And we're talking about Alzheimer's disease. And my friend Chuck Stetson in the Stetson Family Office does such terrific work in this area. And we're doing so many really strong health stories in partnership with the Stetson Family Office. And this is one he just kept coming at us with. And just said, You got to tell this story. You've got to call this lady. And so today we bring you the story of Meryl Comer. She is an Emmy Award winning reporter. She was one of the first women in the early 80s to host a nationally syndicated debate show. But about 20 years ago, Meryl's husband was diagnosed with
4: Alzheimer's. Here is her story The man I live with is not the man I fell in love with and married. He has slowly been robbed of something we all take for granted, the ability to navigate the mundane activities of daily living, bathing, shaving, dressing, feeding, and using the bathroom. His inner clock is confused and can't be reset. His eyes are vacant and unaware, as if an internal window shade veils our access. Before I grasped what was happening, I was hurt and annoyed by my husband's behavior. Those feelings dissolved into unconditional empathy once I understood the cruelty of his diagnosis. Early onset Alzheimer's disease. He was 58. At first, I ran interference and fought for him because it was the right thing to do. He was slipping out of control, confused, childlike. And helpless, his social filter stripped away. He shadowed me because I was familiar and safe, even when he could no longer remember my name. I always loved him, but during our marriage, he was often aloof and unreachable. In illness, unlike in health, he made me feel needed and important to him. Neither a scientist nor a neurologist, I have spent close to two decades trying to decipher what's going on in my husband's head. How hard and unfair it is for such a smart man to lose pieces of his intellect and independence as the circuitry of his brain misfires and corrodes. No new short-term memories stick. His internal navigational compass is shut down. His disease is my crossword puzzle. Harvey has long forgotten me but I am constant as his co-pilot and guardian. Every conversation is inclusive and respectful, even though he is often unintelligible or mute. It is a charade that never ends. I bear the burden of all decisions for us both. The demons and terror of his world define mine. Any challenge is self-defeating. I play into his reality and pretend that his fate and our life together are not doomed. Unfortunately, I know better. Alzheimer's distorts and destroys shared memories that bind family ties. Caregivers are not unlike victims who survive a hurricane and find ourselves sifting through the rubble to rescue faded, storm-drenched photos or sentimental objects. We piece together what's left of our past and struggle to put down building blocks for the future. I need to make some sense of my journey through this storm. My bookshelf is lined with tomes on dementia care, yet the page I need always seems to be missing. Each brain unravels in its own quirky and idiosyncratic way. I have learned firsthand that there is no single solution to taking care of someone with dementia. Many times, personal stories involving Alzheimer's gloss over the unseemly details of care. They're written as love stories of unquestioned devotion or living memorials to honor someone during better times. Why not? As spouses and caregivers, we deserve to do whatever works for us. It's our version of pain management. But I never wanted to embellish or soften the edges around the truth. It does not do justice to the cruelty of the disease. I offer you my own experiences from a position of hard-won humility I hope you will thread them with your own. When I say I have cared full-time for Harvey in our home all these years, many ask me why. Even now, there is always an initial reflex that makes me want to say, do I really need to explain myself after all I've been through? I realize that the question is a natural one, a human one, a social one. The interlocutors are not judging me, but rather vicariously checking themselves. In questioning me, they're testing their own capacity to deal with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the potential impact it might have on their relationship with a partner or parent. When people hear my story, they sometimes tell me they wouldn't make the same choices. I do not hold myself up as an example to follow. No one who has ever been on the front lines of care ever questions when someone says, I can't do this anymore. But I do want to be part of the last generation of caregivers trapped by a loved one's diagnosis, an absence of disease-modifying therapies, and a troublesome lack of quality care options. When it comes to Alzheimer's, caregivers are frequently too worn out or isolated to protest. Perhaps this is why advocacy around the disease has often lacked the passion an energy that characterized the cancer in HIV-AIDS communities. But how will people understand if we don't tell our stories without apology? Alzheimer's disease today affects a reported 5.4 million people in the United States and 44 million worldwide. Like a stealth invader, it is quietly dementing aging populations globally while pushing past cancer and HIV-AIDS as the most critical public health problem of our time. Every 68 seconds, another of us falls victim, yet 50% of those with dementia never get diagnosed. There is not a single FDA-approved drug that actually slows the progression of Alzheimer's disease. There have been too many failed late-stage clinical trials with promising drugs that seemed to work until it became clear they did not. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if Alzheimer's disease was a brand new emergency instead of a century-old threat to which we had somehow become ignored. Perhaps people would understand that when it comes to this disease, everyone is a stakeholder because everyone is at risk. There are also 15 million caregivers just like me, unintended victims and not among the official count. Add to our legions those caring for loved ones young and old with diseases of the brain, traumatic brain injuries, and other chronic diseases complicated by a memory disorder. We speak the same language. Our numbers amplify the collective pain that makes it impossible for me to rest. The only way to minimize the effect of Alzheimer's disease is to get out in front of it, delay its onset, or even reverse devastation of the mind. We need to move toward early diagnosis and study adults who do not yet show symptoms. People like you and me. Such a decision entails hard personal choices, risks, and emotional discomfort. It means demanding safe and clinically valid genetic tests that let us learn if we are at a higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. It requires managing our lives and choices under the shadow of the possibility of disease. Those of us who are 50 years or older must stop viewing ourselves as ageless. All of us should track our cognitive health, just as we do cholesterol levels or blood pressure. I write for all of us who are still well, but have seen the devastation of Alzheimer's disease firsthand. The emergency is with us and in us. I write to clinicians, reluctant to diagnose because they can't effectively treat. Please know the inadvertent trauma you inflict on families, left confused, hurt, and helpless. Then time runs out on the ultimate conversation with our loved ones about end-of-life wishes. Their minds are erased. It's simply too late. I write to reach the generation of our adult sons and daughters who struggle to understand our lives as we care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. They stand on the precipice and wrestle with issues and decisions similar to the ones we've faced. They deserve better options and not the bankrupting burden of our care. This is not the legacy we want for our children or the way any of us wish to be remembered. I write for my grandchildren Because no matter how hard I tried, Alzheimer's blanketed my home with sadness. I know that loving each of them unconditionally has been my salvation. One day, I hope they'll read these words and appreciate my choices. As I write these words, a faint glow fills the room I share with Harvey. He is always present, even though he is absent. There is an intimacy in our isolation. Nonetheless, I am willing to open the door to our room in the hope that you will find a way inside. Only then will my story be worth the pain of its telling.
0: And thank you, Merrill, for that. And Merrill is now the president and CEO of the Jeffrey Bean Foundation Alzheimer's Initiative, which promotes early diagnosis of the disease. It struck her husband, her beloved husband, at the age of 58. A brutal stealth invader, 5.4 million in the U.S. alone, suffer from the disease. Harvey's story and his brides, Meryl Comer, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from history to business and everything in between. And we tell your stories, too. And send them to ouramericannetwork.org, because some of our very best have been from the people who listen to this show, from you. And this next story, well, it's the story of Virginia Hall. And she's a World War II spy who overcame both physical and societal ills during a time when the world seemed to be tearing itself apart, literally. Now for her story, as told by Judy Pearson.
5: Virginia Hall was once asked why she never told her story. She replied that no one had ever asked her. In 2003, I began asking... My quest took me to her niece in Baltimore, newly declassified intelligence records in the National Archives, then to London, Paris, and across the French countryside. I conducted countless interviews in English and in French, and read dozens of personal accounts. What ultimately unfolded was the story of an incredible woman. She was intelligent, brave and outspoken. She was loyal, daring, and stubborn. But as a young woman, all of Virginia Hall's energies were directed at becoming a Foreign Service Officer. At high school graduation, while her chums were thinking of marriage and families, Virginia announced that the only way for a woman to get ahead in the world was with an education. After several undistinguished years at Radcliffe and Barnard, she went to the Sorbonne in Paris, and then the Consolaire Academy in Vienna, from which she graduated in 1929. Back in the States, now fluent in French and German, she applied to take the Foreign Service Exam. The exam consisted of three parts. The first was written, covering all manner of topics, including world history, geography, and sociology. The second tested the applicant's knowledge of a foreign language. Virginia opted for French. And the third part of the exam, far more subjective, gave the examiner the power to judge what kind of officer the applicant would make. Virginia failed the exam, took it again, and was failed again. It was 1930. Women had only had the right to vote for 10 years, and the number of female foreign service officers could be counted on one hand. Gender discrimination was hard at work. She told a family friend that if she couldn't get into the Foreign Service through the front door, she'd try going in through the back door, and landed a job as clerk at the American Embassy in Poland. She once again applied for the exam, but before she completed it, she was transferred to the American Consulate in Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey. Here, her life changed forever. On a December Saturday afternoon hunting expedition with some friends in 1933, Virginia's gun accidentally discharged into her left foot. Despite doctors' best efforts, gangrene set in, and to save her life, they removed her leg from the knee down. What might have been considered by some as a life-ending event, Virginia saw as merely a delay in plans. When she was well enough to travel, she returned home to Baltimore to recuperate and be fitted with a seven pound wooden prosthesis. And a year later, she was back at work, this time at the American consulate in Venice, from which she requested to take the foreign service exam yet again. But this time, rather than test questions, a letter arrived informing her that, according to an obscure statute, amputees were not accepted in the foreign service. The letter concluded by politely asking Virginia not to apply again. She simply wouldn't fit in. As Hitler began blazing across Europe, a discouraged Virginia Hall left her consular job and went to France. Here, her leg was not an issue. She was gratefully accepted as a volunteer ambulance driver for the French army. Nor was her leg an issue several months later, when in London, she was approached by a Special Operations Executive employee, the SOE. This undercover paramilitary organization had been created by Winston Churchill to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. The current war was unlike any other. The Allies needed extraordinary warfare in the form of espionage and sabotage. Escaping French military had told the British that there were many in France who would be willing to rise up against the Nazis, given enough organization and arms. Leaders who could be infiltrated into the country were needed, and Virginia fit the bill. The Brits didn't give a hoot about her gender. In fact, it was believed that women would make the best spies. This doesn't surprise those of us who are women, but it was a revelation to the men. Furthermore, men were being whisked to Germany as laborers. A man on the streets in France needed reasons for being there, but a woman didn't and could travel about more easily. Nor did the Brits care how many limbs Virginia had lost. Her disability was unknown to most. She walked only with a slight limp. At the SOE's training camps, Virginia learned things her Baltimore contemporaries would never have imagined. I had the good fortune to interview one of the instructors while I was in London. Leslie Fernandez taught SOE recruits, including Virginia, physical combat. In other words, how to kill. And Virginia wasn't shown any favoritism because of her missing leg. She wouldn't have accepted it anyway. The only training she didn't receive was in parachuting, the primary means by which agents were infiltrated. It was 1941 and America had not yet entered the war. Virginia would be free to enter France as a non-combatant, which she did using journalism as her cover.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue this story, Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with a Wooden Leg. And by the way, you're not hearing stories like this many other places, folks. And to hear about her grit, her perseverance... And rising above the odds, well, we love stories like this. Virginia Hall's story, again, The Spy with the Wooden Leg continues after these messages. Let's return to Our American Stories. And when we left off, Virginia Hall was sneaking into France back in 1941. Not a time actually to be going into France. And she was posing as a journalist to act as a British intelligence operative. Let's return to the author, Judy Pearson.
5: I spent hours digging through the British National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum archives in London both of which were rich in material. I heard the oral histories of those recruited agents who had daringly dropped into occupied France, where Virginia and others awaited them. When I arrived in France after spending several days digging through the archives in Paris, I rented a car and took off across the country to visit firsthand all of the cities Virginia had worked from. She was ultimately sent to Lyon, the center of resistance activities in unoccupied France. So I went to Lyon as well. There, under her journalism cover, while ostensibly collecting information for newspaper articles, Virginia was also collecting information about Nazi activities. Her flat, innocently appearing as that of a hardworking writer, was the clearinghouse for every British agent who was sent to central France in 1941. Through Virginia, they were able to connect with fellow agents and contact others to help them. They collected counterfeited money and wireless radios needed to perform their work. When they were captured and imprisoned, Virginia worked on their escapes. She organized her own group of resistance members in Lyon and had contacts in Marseille and at the Spanish border, two places from which people could disappear should the need arise. She and her group saved innumerable lives of both downed Allied pilots needing passage out of France and agents who were being hunted by the Gestapo. But it wasn't long before Virginia herself became hunted. Klaus Barbie, later known as the Butcher of Lyon, spread the word that a lady with a limp, an Englishman or a Canadian, was wanted in connection with espionage activities. His posters announced that Virginia was the most dangerous of all Allied spies and that everyone should help him find and destroy her. Virginia's exodus across the Pyrenees Mountains, the rugged chain that separates France from Spain, was in November 1942. The cold and rigorous march would have been exhausting for anyone, but dragging a seven-pound wooden leg through the snow made it all the more difficult for Virginia. She hadn't dared tell the guide about her leg. He was already grumbling because she was a woman. At one point, she was able to radio London to tell them she was on her way out of France. She mentioned that Cuthbert, her clever nickname for her leg, had become quite tiresome. The recipient of the message, ignorant of the leg's name, wired back that if Cuthbert had become tiresome, she should have him eliminated at the end of the grueling 30-mile journey. Virginia was arrested in Spain for not having papers. She was imprisoned for six weeks, released only after her former cellmate, a Barcelona prostitute, was able to get word to the British consulate that she was being held. By the time Virginia had returned to England in early 1943, a new intelligence organization had been born. Its name was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was patterned after the SOE, with one exception. It was pure American, led by a hero from World War I named General Wild Bill Donovan. Virginia was desperate to get back into the fight, and transferring to the OSS made sense since she was an American. But there was a concern. She was now a hunted woman whose sketched picture had been spread throughout France. A return could only be facilitated if she were disguised. That of an old peasant woman fit the bill. On her second trip to occupied France, Virginia's intelligence and ingenuity served her and saved her many times. This time, she acted as her own radio operator setting up numerous resistance cells. Three months after returning to France, the greatest armada the world had ever seen crossed the channel for the D-Day landings. When the signal was given, her resistance cell went into action, cutting off Nazi supply lines and disrupting their communications, all in a successful effort to aid the Allied invasion of Europe. By the fall of 1944, all of France was liberated. During Virginia's second stint in the country, she had had the pleasure of leading 1,500 resistance volunteers who killed 150 Nazis and captured 500 more. Her team had sabotaged numerous transportation and communication links. Virginia's leadership in sang-froid was not only admired, it became legendary. They called her La Medonne, the Madonna. Virginia was awarded the Member of the British Empire, the French Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, the only woman in World War II to receive that American distinction. But Virginia wasn't interested in accolades. She wanted to continue her work in espionage. Although the OSS had been dissolved, Virginia was one of the first women on board the new intelligence agency, known as the Central Intelligence Group. It became the Central Intelligence Agency in December 1947. But the new world of intelligence was very different from the one Virginia had previously been a part of. Communism was the enemy now, and as one observer put it, Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Virginia wanted desperately to become an operative again, willing to undergo whatever training was necessary. But at the advanced age of 41, she was looked upon as old school. Her skills were outdated, and her aggressiveness was offensive to the younger men who were her superiors. Her experience was dismissed as not pertinent. After all she'd been through and all the sacrifices she'd gladly made, once again Virginia Hall didn't fit in. Virginia had married Paul Goyo in 1950, a French-American she had met toward the end of the war. She accepted mandatory retirement from the CIA in 1966, and she and Paul moved to a farm in Barnstown, Maryland. They raised poodles, gardened, and grew old together. Virginia died in 1982, and Goyo followed five years later. She was never bitter about the fact that her career hadn't begun or ended as she would have liked. Rather, Virginia chose to remember the magnificent days in the middle, the days when her clever mind and brave heart helped defeat fascists, bent-down world domination.
0: And a special thanks to Judy Pearson. And by the way, her book about Virginia Hall was called Wolves at the Door, The True Story of America's Greatest Female Spy. And I had never heard that story. And I'm a big World War II buff. And it doesn't get better than a story like that. I mean, the woman accidentally shoots her foot off. And for most people, that's it. She gets turned down once, twice, twice but is determined to be a member of the Foreign Service, eases her way into France when most people will be running from France as the Nazis come to occupy the country. And ultimately, Klaus Barbie, the butcher, has her as the most wanted person in the Nazi regime when it comes to spies. Certainly, what an impact she had, her life, what an example. And by the way to be the only woman to win the American Distinguished Service Cross. I don't know why more of us don't know this story, um, but that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, what Judy Pearson did here, the author, I mean, she literally walked in Virginia Hall's shoes, traveled all over Europe just just to honor her story. And these are the kind of writers and researchers we love to put on the show. Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with a Wooden Leg, here on Our American Stories.
3: This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory at oanetwork.org. That's yourstory at oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it.
0: And we continue with our American stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, and we particularly love to tell stories about music, because we can't imagine doing the show without it, and moreover, we can't imagine life without music. It's that moment where we all just shut up and either dance or listen, and for a moment at least, everyone in the room, everyone in the room is on the same page. And this next story, well, it's a rock and roll fantasy story about the band Boston and one particular dreamer. And by the way, the rock and roll band Boston sold over 75 million albums with classic hits like More Than a Feeling," Peace of Mind, Rock and Roll Band, Smokin', and Don't Look Back. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of a Home Depot employee
6: and his favorite rock and roll band. When our favorite songs are played, we all do the same thing. We turn it up and we sing along. But the idea of living a rock and roll fantasy and being the lead singer in your favorite band is only played out on the big screen and on television, right? For everyone who ever dreamed of being a rock star, meet Tommy DiCarlo. He sings every night to tens of thousands of screaming fans, but only months before his gig as the lead singer of the legendary rock band Boston, 42-year-old Tommy wore the orange apron and worked on the floor at Home Depot in Charlotte, North Carolina, where his singing was confined to the shower and karaoke bars. Here's DiCarlo.
7: I remember doing karaoke at a bowling alley. There was maybe 30 or 40 people that, that most of them were bowling. They weren't even listening to karaoke.
6: So how did Tommy's life go from this...
7: Well, let us know if we can help you, okay?
6: ...to this... most kids who came of age in the late 70s, Tommy DiCarlo was struck by Boston in the summer of 76 when the band released the momentous debut album, which perfectly packaged progressive rock with melodic pop. Back when I was around 12 or 13, a friend of mine bought the debut and lent it to me, and I never gave it back, DiCarlo says. I fell in love with the music and especially Brad Delp's vocals. Boston never toured as much as its 70s counterparts. So DiCarlo didn't get to see Boston until the mid-90s. My first show, he says, I was able to meet Brad Delp. I wasn't among 30 or 40 people at a meeting and greet. But after the show, I hung around by the buses and yelled Brad's name. And we talked for a minute. I'm really thankful I got to meet him. You got to tell him how much he loved Boston. But he was so wrapped up in the moment, he didn't even remember to have Delp sign the CD he was holding in his hand. Here's Tommy describing what life was like before living out his rock and roll fantasy. Um,
7: pretty average. Uh, worked a uh, 40 hour a week job at the Home Depot, and, and still am. I'm on the leave of absence there right now.
6: The Carlos gig began with an unfortunate incident back on March 9, 2007 when Boston's lead singer, Brad Delp, took his own life at age 55, leaving a note clipped to his shirt that said, I am a lonely soul. The band posted on its website, we've just lost the nicest guy in rock and roll. Here's DiCarlo.
7: A lot of the fans, including myself, felt terrible about that. You know, it was, it was, it was a pretty rough time for, for a lot of folks. And um, I decided to go ahead and Uh, write a tribute song in memory of Brad and uh, it was a very short piece just a couple minutes long but I didn't really know how to go about sharing that with the other fans which is what I really wanted to do so uh, I went ahead and um, my daughter my daughter Talia told me Hey, Dad, why don't you try MySpace? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll try it. Well, I got a message from another fan. That's the beauty of uh, MySpace and the, the friends you could make through the, uh, through the MySpace uh, page. Um, a, a, a Boston fan had uh, sent me an email saying, I love your tribute song. Uh, would you consider sending it to the band? I have a, an old email address. And I'm like... Uh, Okay, sure, I'll I'll try it. It's funny because uh, back when I was a young teenager, I had a lot of folks, uh, a lot of friends would tell me that I had a very similar voice to the lead singer of Boston. They didn't know his name was Brad Delp back then. but And I says, yeah, you know, uh, thanks. That was a great compliment. And over the years, uh, I would sing a lot of the Boston music and still get those same compliments. So when that person sent me that email and told me, why don't you try sending your stuff over to, to, to the Boston camp? I was like,
6: ah, you know, may- maybe. Here's that cover of Peace of Mind DiCarlo posted on MySpace. Tommy's cover eventually reached the founder of the band, MIT mastermind and guitar geek, Tom Scholz. Here's Scholz with the story.
8: Actually, through my wife, Kim, uh, I, w- I was walking through the uh, kitchen, and she was listening to something on her uh, computer that was uh, up on the Internet. Um, and I was, uh, and she said, what do you think of this? And I said, well, um, I've never heard that uh, recording of Brad before. What show is that from? And she said, that's not Brad. And I said, oh, yes, that's Brad. And she said, no, this is not Brad. And uh, I didn't realize till I put it up on um, some big speakers and listened to the background music that it was in fact not Boston, um, and it was uh, some sort of a karaoke track. And then I realized this wasn't Brad, but it sounded just exactly like him and I, I know every nuance of Brad's voice worked with him for 35 years so I was, uh, I was shocked but yes I did the moment I heard that start to think alright maybe there is another future for Boston and uh, uh, we, uh, we proceeded uh, cautiously but quickly and um, invited him to Boston to uh, make an appearance with us on stage at a tribute show last summer for Brad.
6: So what was it like for this fan of Boston to pick up the phone and hear it was Tom Shoals on the other end?
7: I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. It was uh, it's, it's almost hard to put into words, really. I just <laughs> could not believe it. It was, it was I was shocked and I was excited. it was it was just an amazing it was an amazing day, believe me.
6: DiCarlo's wife of 21 years was his number one groupie and his two teenagers saw their dad as the real American Idol. For Tommy, it was tough to leave his job at Home Depot in Charlotte. He liked his co-workers and rather enjoyed helping people find hardware. And he doesn't rule out going back to it at some point. In terms of lifestyle, not much has changed. DiCarlo says, We live in the same house, and the best part of my day is my kids and wife. And I get a lot of support from the people at the store. For the time being, though, he's just enjoying the ride.
7: You know, just like, uh, what, the Boston song, I'm just taking my time, just moving along.
6: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story.
0: Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Our American Stories, and when we first bumped into Dr. Charles Kemper of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin... We were amazed. Graduating from Duke University in 1940, this 100-year-old doctor has seen generations come and go in his town and actually helped deliver a whole lot of those generations at birth. Knowing that he was probably a treasure trove of stories, we sent our team out to interview him at his home. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with his story. Dr. Charles Kemper grew up on the east coast in baltimore maryland
9: baltimore is like a big metropolis most any place but baltimore at the time at one time was a principal city in in the united states right on the chesapeake bay was a center for shipping and uh there was a lot going on and that's where the star spangled banner was written francis scott key and uh I had good parents. My dad uh, had a terrible temper, and I was a, I was scared of him because trivial things would upset him. I think it wasn't just his fault. Like a lot of people uh, have a kind of a sort of a marginal existence where they have to work very hard just to keep their family going. Uh, he would get come home tired, exhausted, working 20 hours a day, uh, Carrying suitcases, he was a merchandiser. He would travel to all these little towns with had little stores and pull out these big sample boxes, open them up, and show them what what they might like to buy. Well, anyway, he'd come home and get mad at trivial things like, why don't you fix me to those fried potatoes like I always like?" I guess he was so tired and exhausted that everything annoyed him. But I think he was very good-hearted nevertheless. And I came across a letter he wrote once in which he said, uh, everybody hates me. (laughs) That was just his perception. I remember one time I and my cousin Sidney, we played hokey from Sunday school. And he was supposed to pick us up on a certain corner downtown Baltimore. We went to the wrong corner or waited for him at the wrong corner or he forgot which corner it was, I don't know, but anyway boy I was scared I didn't know what he was going to say or do. I had some of those characteristics but I think they gradually evolved as I got older in the understanding And I certainly don't feel that way now.
1: And eager to live a life better than his father did, Charles decided that he wanted to become a doctor, a dream his mother was more than happy to support.
9: When I graduated, she gave me a doctor's bag, and I still have it. And I still used it all all these years. It was a sort of a, a truism that Jewish mothers were ambitious that their sons would become doctors and not uh, politicians.
1: (laughs) After serving as a medic in the Army Air Corps in World War II, Kemper decided to move to Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, setting the city aside for the country due to a number of reasons.
9: My wife's parents lived uh, in a town not far from here, and she was pregnant. This was after I had to decide where I was going to practice, and I thought I'd be be good to practice here in this small town because she would be close to her parents when she had her first child. And one of the doctors at the hospital where I was resident said, why don't you come to Chippewa Falls? There's only 10 doctors here. So I came here. I was the 11th doctor. My parents uh, were happy that I was a doctor, but they wanted me to stay uh, in Baltimore, and they thought that this country out here was a Wild West where cowboys and Indians. When they arrived to see me, visit me for the first time, as they were walking in the do- into the house, a car pulled up with four hunters in it. They pulled up in front of the house and yelled at me, did you see where the wolf went? <laughs> My mother almost fainted. I really came from a different world. <laughs> but I, I I wanted to be in a place where I where I knew everybody and got acquainted with them and they knew me. I remember the very first patient I had in town, all the doctors in those days in this town. Had their office upstairs, uh, which is uh, kind of stupid when you think about it because people with heart trouble will have to climb those stairs. Well, anyway, the first day I, in my practice, I had my office upstairs in downtown. You had to walk down the hall, and that was the last office there. And my first day in practice, I, I parked a car out front And I waited there, and I didn't see a patient until just about 4.30. An old man walked in, and he didn't have anything seriously wrong with him. But he asked me if I would come see his father. See his father? Holy smokes. He must be really old. I was curious. So I said, sure, I'll be happy to come see him. Well, when he left, and I walked down to my car, and lo, I had a ticket for illegal parking uh, And uh, the fine was exactly the same as what the patient paid me, which was two bucks. I used to like to make house calls because that took me out in the country, and I I always had my binoculars on the seat beside me, and I would stop and look at, uh, stare at, that's some bird,
1: You heard right. Dr. Kemper has always had a fascination with birds. Dating back to his time in World War II when crossing the Pacific by boat, he watched albatross and other birds off the ship, out of boredom primarily. Charles now tells the story of one of his memorable bird-watching experiences.
9: There was one time at the base of this hill, or at the top of the hill, is a Catholic church, and the nun's live in the convent. Well, anyway, I was driving up the hill and I got to the top. I saw a white, pure white starling that I had captured and, ban- and put a band on it about a week before. Bird banding is an occupation by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. In those days, it didn't have high technology. That was one way of studying, putting a a serial numbered band on an aluminum band around the ankle of the bird. And that way, if the bird was ever recovered, they would know where the bird went. But anyway, I pulled my car to a stop and jumped out of the car with my binoculars and I stared at that starling. I wanted to see if it had a bend on its leg. And just then, curtain in the convent came down suddenly as <laughs> nurse or some lady, uh sister in the convent saw me with my binoculars. And, <laughs> and uh, I thought, uh-oh, there goes my reputation. So uh, I had to live that down.
1: And Charles even took some of his patients bird watching.
9: I remember I had one lady uh, who was old enough to be my mother, was interested in birds. And one day I took her, her, she and her husband and myself, uh, went out to a swamp just outside of town. And there was an interesting bird there that, we were looking at, the bird was a bittern, which has a habit of standing very still and with his bill pointed upward. And he fades into the environment, but he doesn't move. That's his means of defense. And we were on the roadside and looking at that bird, which was about 20 yards away. And I wanted to see what would happen if I picked up a small rock, and throw it near the bird, see if I could flush it to fly away. Well, I wasn't too accurate. When I threw the rock, it hit the bird. (laughs) And Mrs. Lund was her name anyway. She said right away, I'm changing doctors. (laughs) she thought i threw a rock at the bird i didn't throw a rock at the bird i was trying to miss the bird
1: just scare him so he would see if he would fly off and even today at 100 years old charles still has a fascination with birds but as for his longevity he thanks their creator and his
9: i was just lucky i had nothing to do with my longevity i was just <laughs> Good Lord, had some reason for keeping me here, and I I firmly believe that.
0: And you've been listening to Doctor Charles Kemper of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, and what a unique voice! And my goodness, the days of a doctor making house calls, of having a home office in the home—what a shock to the Baltimore family! I spent some time living in Baltimore myself, and near the big city of New York. We now broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi. A small town of 20,000 an hour south of Memphis. It still shocks some of my friends, but it's home to me and my family. And this show. And a great job as always by Monty Montgomery, a proud Hillsdale alum. Dr. Charles Kemper's story here on Our American Story.